Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dan Riley. The Exchange is a streaming internet talk show and podcast of interviews with noteworthy people about their lives, ideas, and current events. This week I sit down with author Adam Hochschild. During our conversation, Adam talks about his interests in journalism and history, his book, Bury the Chains, which details the abolitionists who worked to successfully end the British slave trade, and what modern climate change activists can learn from the lessons of that movement. Adam, first of all, I just want to say thank you again for taking some time and, uh, and talking to the listeners. Welcome to the show, and, and thanks so much for, for the time. Good. You bet. Uh, first question I'd love to, to ask is just sort of learning about your, your personal background a little mm-hmm. bit and how you got interested in journalism and writing. Was that something you always sort of had an aptitude for growing up and a, a desire to follow? Uh, well, certainly by the time I graduated from college, I wanted to go in that direction. Um, I realized that journalism is a profession that gives you a legitimate excuse to poke into other people's lives to go to interesting places and uh, to sort of mind other people's business in a, in a productive way. So uh, I, when I graduated from college, I, I first worked as a newspaper reporter for a couple of years, then wrote and edited at magazines for some years, and then about 30 years ago started writing books. Was there were there novels or, or nonfiction books that, that you read growing up that were sort of an inspiration for the sort of books that you m- one day might be interested in in writing? Um, not exactly. I've always enjoyed reading. Uh, I probably read much more fiction than nonfiction mm. for for pleasure. Mm. Uh, I like the way novelists apprehend the world. Uh, and at the same time, I like writers who explore the moral ins and outs of a situation. Uh, George Orwell has always been a big hero of mine mm. for that reason. Mm. Um, and gosh, I mean, there's so many writers I could say all sorts of great things about, but most of them would be pretty familiar people. Mm. So I, I first learned about you after doing an interview with uh, the, one of the co-founders of 350.org, the, mm, the mm-hmm. organization in New York that, yeah. that's, that's combating global warming. Yeah. And a conversation I had with, uh, with him after we were done with the interview, his name is Jamie Henn. He's, one of the, he's the communications director there. Um, I, I asked him after he had gone through sort of what he viewed uh, it would take for humanity to really begin to grapple with combating climate change if there had been a precedent in history that uh, sort of uh, modeled what he thought was going to be required to mobilize large numbers of people. And he pointed me to your book, Bury the Chains. I was about to go to Europe for a couple of months, so I bought it and, and read it as I was traveling. Um, and I was curious to, to sort of wonder um, if you knew that story in any detail prior to doing your research. Were you familiar with the key players that would end up becoming a part of that book? I was not, actually. I uh, And for me to write a book, it has to be something that I don't know much about to begin with, because it's the fun of exploring that keeps me going. I, I started off with that book thinking that I was going to do something else entirely. Mm. I had read a little bit about John Newton, the former slave ship captain who 
much later in his life, wrote everybody's favorite hymn, Amazing Grace. And I had thought, uh, wow, this will be an interesting story of transformation, and which is something many people think when they first hear about Newton. Former slave ship captain, you know, becomes great hymn writer. Well, the more I, I learned about his life, the more I realized that it didn't fit that script at all. He had his conversion to evangelical Christianity before he went into the slave trade, mm -hmm. not afterwards. He left the slave trade not out of principle, but for medical reasons. He then became a famous evangelical preacher and never said a word about slavery for the next 30 years until this anti-slavery movement erupted on all sides of him. And uh, people came to him and said, uh, Reverend Newton, we wish you'd say something. And then he wrote a short, very forceful pamphlet, uh, testified once or twice before Parliament, and never spoke again on the subject in his life in any recorded way. And then it occurred to me, wait a minute, maybe the story is the movement. And the more I learned about it, the more I got fascinated by this uh, little group of abolitionists who began meeting in London in 1787 and who turned around British public opinion on this enormously important moral issue and who did so by developing all kinds of new media for communications. And uh, I got fascinated by them. And I think they're some of the greatest community organizers of all time. Uh, and it was a wonderful experience to spend four years in their company doing this research. Mm. I know, I think in the, in, the, in the introduction of the book, or at the beginning of the book, you write about how this was really one of the first times ever in human history where a large group of people got angry or got concerned and stayed concerned about other people's rights other than themselves. That's right. What, what, what was it in the air? What was going on that, that produced that sort of interest at that time period? Well, I think a couple of things, because there had been, of course, revolts by slaves and other oppressed people of one sort or another all through history, sometimes successful, all too often not successful. But this was the first time that large numbers of people got outraged about somebody else's conditions when the, the, that somebody else was people of another color in another part of the world. I think there were a number of things that made that happen. Um, 1787, when this movement started off with a bang, uh, was a moment in time between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. There were a lot of ideas about human freedom in the air. Moreover, uh, in, in England, where this started, uh, people were very proud of the extent to which their country was a democracy in the way that the rest of the world, with a few exceptions, was not. Mm. Uh, there was complete freedom of speech. There was no censorship. Um, only a small number of people could vote, but the election campaigns were very public affairs. So people lived in a, in a voting culture. Legal rights were well established. Um, you know, a commoner could take a lord to court and in theory win. Um, and I think this set up a situation where people were ripe to wonder, you know, how is it then being very proud of all these liberties and rights 
that we are enslaving hundreds of thousands of people of another color in the West Indies. Uh, there was also something else that made Britain distinct at that time, which is that for a hundred years there had been a kind of slavery in Britain itself, which was the Royal Navy's practice of using press gangs to kidnap young men off the streets and send them off for five years to uh, staff the Royal Navy. And if they were, they were not always lucky enough to survive those, those five years. And there was tremendous agitation against this practice um, uh, because it was really cruel. Uh, you know, there are cartoons from the time of young men being kidnapped from their wedding processions and so forth. The Navy needed men. The Navy, you know, Royal Navy ruled the seas. They could only do it if they, if they uh, kidnapped enough strong-looking young men to, to man all the ships. Tremendous agitation against this. All kinds of demonstrations and, you know, people fighting back against these press gangs, as they were called. And uh, uh, people speaking against it in Parliament. They couldn't get the practice abolished. It wasn't abolished till after the Napoleonic Wars. But it injected into the public discourse uh, a lot of agitation against a practice that uh, resembled slavery in some respects. People being kidnapped, sent thousands of miles away from home against their will. And indeed, some of the rhetoric against it um, involved uh, agitators saying, this is no better than slavery. And uh, we British people should have the right not to be slaves. So I think it was a fairly small step from that to opening up the idea that maybe uh, nobody uh, should be a slave. Take us back to the, that time in the late 18th century where the, the details of, of just how expansive the British slave trade was. Where was it? How many people were involved? What were the details there? Well, <clears throat> at that time, the... Um, all the plantations of the Americas were worked by slaves. You know, the plantations of the American South, uh, <clears throat> cotton, sugar, other crops. Uh, above all, the plantations of the West Indies, which were by far the most lucrative colonies on earth. Uh, sugar, coffee, indigo, sugar above all, enormous source of wealth. Um, same thing in South America, Brazil, other countries in South America, all those plantations worked by slaves. So there was a tremendous slave traffic across the Atlantic, uh, you know, uh, slave traders going up and down the coasts of Africa, kidnapping people, carrying them to the, to, to the New World. Uh, roughly half of that traffic traveled in British ships, which meant that overall, you know, we're talking late, uh, late 18th century, about 80,000 captive after Africans a year brought across the Atlantic with about 40,000 of them traveling in British ships, which did a big business delivering slaves, not just to British colonies in the Americas, which after the American Revolution meant the West Indies, essentially, but to other people's colonies as well. So Britain was the dominant force in the Atlantic slave trade. One of the most interesting things I remember reading in, in, in your book was the, one of the most striking things was just the sheer brutality of the entire exercise, but the difference between 
the life expectancy for slaves who ended up in what is now Jamaica versus other areas. Right. And it was really more like a death camp that you went there to die. Whereas yeah. in the American South, there actually was procreating and there was a, not a, not a great place to end up, but the, the life expectancy was certainly longer than in other places. What, how did that work? Why was, why well, was Jamaica? I think the reason for that was the climate in the American South was much more temperate uh, than the West Indies. So the work wasn't quite as harsh. I mean, it's a nasty thing to be a slave anywhere, but at least if there's winter, there's a period when you're not out in the fields cultivating crops. Um, the climate was more temperate, which meant fewer tropical diseases, and there was a lot more land so that um, the slaves had room to plant their own gardens and grow vegetables and this kind of thing. Still a pretty miserable life, still you know being bought and sold at the will of the owners and so forth. But basically slavery in the American South by the late 18th century was not something that had to be sustained by the Atlantic slave trade. There were still shiploads of slaves sold, but basically the the, uh, the the planters realized it was more profitable to allow the slaves to marry and have children so that they could produce new generations to, to work the, the plantations. As a result, the slave population of the American South was growing quite rapidly. In the West Indies, uh, it was a different situation tropics, so you worked all year round, uh, heavy prevalence of tropical diseases. Uh, because the islands were small, all of the best land was seized for growing crops, uh, slave-grown grown crops, uh, sugar above all, which meant that the patches of land that the slaves got to grow their own vegetables and so on were very tiny and mm. the, the worst land. And thus the economy there depended on slaves essentially being worked to death, you know, working lifetime of 10, 15 years, and then new shiploads would be bought. And the saying among planters was, it's better to buy than to breed. Mm. In other words, to just buy new shiploads of slaves from Africa rather than, you know, allowing them to, to reproduce. Mm. So slavery in the West Indies uh, uh, was much harsher than it was in the American South. Same thing on the coast of Brazil as well. And for average uh, citizens of, of Britain who were who were living in Britain at that time, it's it's probably hard to know what what the average person knew or didn't know about the slave trade. As I, as I think you mentioned in the book, it was before photography was around. So, right. what people were using their sugar to sweeten up their drinks. What what what, what did people in in Britain at that time know about the details of the slave trade prior to the movement? Yeah, I think it depended on what kind of work they were in. For anybody who was a sailor, um, they would have seen shiploads of slaves on the Atlantic because it was such a high proportion of the, the transatlantic shipping traffic. Uh, and there were thousands of Britons who'd gone to the West Indies to work on these slave plantations as clerks and overseers and uh, you know engineers and carpenters and whatnot. And they came back and they'd seen something of it. But if you weren't involved in the maritime world or hadn't been in the West Indies, uh, you probably didn't have much of an idea about what slavery was. You just knew that uh, sugar was everywhere. You needed sugar for coffee, tea, chocolate, because these are all inherently kind of bitter things. 
uh, and sugar was used for produce for preserving fruits and you know jams and jellies and all kinds. They made sugar sculptures, and there was even a crackpot dentist who advocated using sugar to clean your teeth. So sugar was omnipresent, and uh, uh, you know initially the the argument uh, that was made against the abolitionists was. You know, well, if we didn't have slaves, where would our sugar come from? We couldn't get by without that. Let's talk about two of the main characters in the book, William Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson. And one of the things I think your book probably brought to life, maybe more than any other, is the prominence of Thomas Clarkson in the movement. This tall, ginger-haired man mm-hmm. from, from Britain. Um how did you first discover him as a character? And, and maybe we can start there and then talk about why he was lost from history, mm-hmm. largely. Well, he is really central to this movement because he was the traveling organizer who throughout his life went on, um, you know, traveled the, the roads and highways of, of England, Wales, Scotland, uh, organizing people uh, for the anti-slavery committee. Uh, rounding up potential witnesses, people who might testify before Parliament, because the abolitionists early on realized that if they were going to uh, accomplish this, of banning the slave trade and eventually slavery itself, they would have to have expert witnesses who would testify before Parliament, people who worked on slave ships and slave plantations who could say what it was like. So he was sent out to round up these people He was sent out to uh, set up local committees everywhere, Uh, you know, hundreds of them all over Britain. Uh, And to me, that was a fascinating figure, a a traveling organizer, a man who had a knack for how to do this, uh, a man who could be stirred to outrage, uh, not just by slavery, but by other injustices as well, got very worked up over the press gang. It was this something as a young man that he witnessed something regarding slavery that inspired him to do. I know he was a religious man, maybe not as conservative as Wilberforce, but it did seem to be religiously motivated, at least in some way, his his activity. It's a little bit of a mystery, which is one thing that makes it interesting to me. We know that his father was a minister who was um, uh, especially known for ministering to the poor. Exactly what that meant, we don't know. But that was what, what Thomas was called. He, he, he died when Thomas was quite young. Mm. Um, so Thomas Clarkson headed for the ministry himself. And then, with no particular interest in slavery or social justice or anything, but then when he was a student at Cambridge going for his divinity degree, he entered this contest where you had to, the contest was who would write the best Latin essay. Mm-hmm. And he picked <coughs> as his, his topic uh, the morality of slavery. And then he started doing research and uh, reading what was available, went around and interviewed people. His brother, who was a naval officer, had just gotten back from the West Indies and said, yes, I can tell you what it's like. I've seen it. Here's what, here's what they do to people. And he got tremendously worked up about this. They also discovered, the two brothers, that a friend of the family who'd been in the shipping business, that some of his ships had carried slaves. And this man had recently died, and they looked at his records. We don't know any more about it than that. It, it's a, 
it's one of those mysterious episodes that I wish I knew more detail on. Um, so there does not seem to have been a particular <coughs> moment other than the weeks and perhaps months that Clarkson spent writing this Latin essay. Um, that really affected him deeply. But even when he graduated, uh, he still assumed that he was going into the ministry and he headed off to London. And then there's this wonderful moment where he's riding his horse to London and suddenly sits down and, and finds himself thinking not about the pleasure of having won this Latin essay prize or about the promising career that's awaiting him, but rather about what he'd written. And <coughs> gets back on the horse, spends the rest of his life on this subject. If if the spark begins with Thomas Thomas Clarkson, how does the flame spread? So he he's you know, perhaps the 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 main agitator well, at the beginning. There were people before who were concerned about this, but they hadn't been able to get traction. The Quakers were the only religious denomination in Britain which had a principled stand against slavery, and for 20 years they'd been issuing pamphlets and trying to do things, but they couldn't get traction because people wrote them off as oddballs. They wore these funny hats, right. which they refused to take off. They, you know, said thee and thou, uh, <clears throat> a lot of other things that appeared to people as strange. They wouldn't use the names of the days of the week or the days of the months because these derived from Roman gods. So everything was first day, second month, and so forth. Um, but they were good people, and they and they had they had a network. Um, there were other people. There was uh, an Anglican minister, James Ramsey, who was an early associate of Clarkson's, who had worked in the West Indies, and had gotten into trouble uh, by trying to preach Christianity to the slaves, which mm -hmm. was always something the planters didn't like because it, you know. Uh, it seeded them with, with ideas about human dignity and so forth. Um, preachers always wanted to teach them how to read so they could read the Bible, and planters didn't like this. Uh, Ramsey was now back in England at this point. Um, so Clarkson's genius was that he pulled together all of these people. And uh, <clears throat> then it, it culminated with this meeting on May 22nd, 1787 in a Quaker bookstore and printing shop in London, um, 12 men of whom Clarkson was one, who formed themselves into a committee to end the slave trade. They thought wrongly that if they ended the slave trade, slavery itself would wither and die because West Indian slavery was so much based on these constant shiploads of, of new captives coming from Africa. Um, and they also thought that was a more realistic target because Parliament had a history of regulating trade, whereas if you tried to abolish slavery right off, that meant confiscating property from people, and that would that sort of a different order of magnitude of what was required. Um, but the unusual thing about this committee was that it had both Quakers who had the network and who knew something about organizing and Anglicans who were the respectable face to the world that they needed. And by arrangement, it was an Anglican who signed all the letters so that they didn't have to use the <laughs> Quaker 
names for days mm-hmm. of the week and month and so on. I think I've heard you mention that, that that's one of the unique things about the, the this movement is that it was people of different variety of different religious backgrounds working together for perhaps the first time for a larger goal. Yeah, and for a secular goal. Right. Um, and this was unprecedented. I mean, previously, uh, there had certainly been people from different religious denominations, Quakers, Baptists, or whatever, working for their own rights. But the idea of people from different denominations in this very religious age coming together to work for a common goal that didn't directly have anything to do with religion was was quite remarkable. Mm. And how long did it take the, from the, that meeting and the beginning of, of their work to the end of uh, the ending of the British slave trade? That, how, how long are we talking about? It here? took 20 years to end the slave trade. The, that first meeting of the committee was 1787. The British slave trade ended in 1807. Mm. Then, and everybody, planters, abolitionists, and so on, all expected that at that point, West Indian slavery would wither away. But of course it didn't, because without the new supply of slaves from Africa, planters then began providing medical care for slaves mm. and you know, improving their diet and so on, not out of the goodness of their hearts, but so they would you know, reproduce a new generation mm. of, of slaves now that you could no longer buy captives from Africa. By the time the abolitionists realized this, it was the 1820s, then they got back to work began organizing again. And then finally, uh, after enormous agitation and a big slave revolt in Jamaica, which had a lot to do with it, uh, in 1833, the British Parliament finally uh, (coughs) emancipated the slaves of the British Empire, which took effect in 1838. Hmm. Obviously, prior to the ending of slavery in this country. Quarter century before, yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the the time period between that first meeting and the ending of of the slave trade. In terms of, you know, a lot of this seems to be just the proliferation of information, the spread of information within uh, within Britain. What what sort of details or or things did people learn that they hadn't known before? Largely because of Clarkson. And one of the things I know you mentioned is the the famous uh, picture of I think it's S, the SS Brooks of, yeah. of the mm-hmm. of the slave ship. Talk to me about some of the things that people became aware of that they didn't know about before. Well, uh, the thing that fascinates me about the committee is they used all these tools. Mm. One of them was graphics. They did this extraordinary poster, which everybody's seen because it's on the cover of half the books about slavery and it's in every TV documentary about the slave trade. Um, this diagrammatic picture in black and white that shows the arrangement of slaves' bodies packed into several decks of this ship. Uh, You know, top-down view, side view, so on. Uh, It was done by uh, people in one of the anti-slavery local committees that Clarkson set up in the port of Plymouth. And it was very carefully modeled on a particular ship, the Brooks of Liverpool, and rather conservatively drawn because we know from shipping records, which are very ex- extensive because slaves are valuable cargo, uh, that it the diagram actually shows somewhat fewer slaves than the Brooks carried on at least some of its voyages. But this had tremendous impact in the day before photography. This kind of super realistic diagram of something like this 
had not been done before. And um, uh, people were just bowled over by it. You can find accounts in, in memoirs and so on of what effect it had on people when it was, was hung up in, in, in homes and so forth. Uh, there was talk about whether uh, the comrades on the, of the French abolitionist movement should show it to King Louis the Sixteenth of, mm. of France, but the king was thought to have a, a weak heart, and that looking at this diagram would overwhelm him. So they didn't show it to him. Uh, but you know, the abolitionists in London did send copies of it to France. They sent some to their <laughs> their friend uh, Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia, and they ran off eight thousand copies and uh, put them up in pubs all over Britain. And this was the f world's first widely distributed political poster. Mm. Um, so that was a, a, a big tool. Um, another tool they had what I think was the first logo ever designed specifically for a political organization. Kneeling slave in chains, surrounded by the legend, uh, am I not a man or a brother? And when women got into the act, uh, uh, a couple decades later, and there were women's anti-slavery committees. They did one uh, <coughs> woman slave <coughs> in chains and the legend, Am I Not a Woman and a Sister? So and that, that was another tool. Uh, they got people to write anti-slavery ballads that were sold on street corners, just like today we might, you know, agitating for something, get people to write op-ed articles. Um and most of all, I think, they discovered that what worked with people in terms of what kinds of arguments, what kinds of literature was effective, um, was different from what had previously been thought. All of the dialogue about this in Britain in earlier years had always been carried on in terms of biblical argument. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that can go on forever because you can quote the Bible to prove either side of any number of questions. Um, what Clarkson and the people around him discovered was that what really, <coughs> really moved people to action was eyewitness testimony mm. by people who had experienced slavery or seen it in action. Um, and Clarkson got Newton to write about being a, a slave ship captain. He got Alexander Falconbridge, who'd been a doctor on slave ships, to write about that. Uh, Olauda Equiano, a, a former slave living in Britain, wrote his remarkable autobiography. Uh, that became a bestseller. Um, and they very quickly saw that this was the way that you talk to people. And this is what human rights organizations still do today. You want to convince somebody of something, you've got to show them eyewitness testimony. You've got to, to bring alive an injustice in order to make people outraged about it. Uh, the, the most spectacular advantage uh, example of this, I think, came in, I think it was 1789, when there was a vote on the subject coming up in Parliament by that point, there had been something like 1,500 or 2,000 pages worth of testimony before the House of Commons, the House of Lords, committees of Parliament, and so forth. Um, and the abolitionists wanted to 
distill this for people who were going to be taking part in this vote in the House of Commons. They knew nobody was going to read the whole 2,000 pages. So they boiled it down uh, with excerpts from testimonies um, and reorganized it. So it was just, you know, excerpts of a paragraph or two from different people's testimony organized into chapters, conditions on slave ships, conditions on plantations, punishments meted out to slaves, uh, and so forth. Little 140, 150-page pamphlet, printed it up for members of parliament. Uh, there were some copies left over, so they thought, well, let's see if we can sell some to the general public. And it became the best-selling nonfiction, <laughs> non piece of nonfiction anti-slavery literature of all time was still in print uh, in the United States at the time of the Civil War, mm. more than uh, 70 years later. Mm. Did, the American, did the American abolitionists, in, including escaped slaves, um, take lessons from the British uh, abolitionists? Very movement? much so. Um, when <coughs> the, um, the final uh, battle came in Parliament, uh, 1833, and all summer par Parliament was arguing about emancipation. Um, William Lloyd Garrison came over to London and sat in the abolitionist coffee houses with them as they plotted their strategy. Hmm. So bringing bring these lessons to today, whether it's talking about human rights for, for displaced people throughout the world or trying to mobilize nations or people of, of nations regarding global warming, what what can we do? What can organizations do that we've sort of learned from from what the British have done successfully, what they did successfully in ending the British slave trade? Are, are there a few suggestions that you would give to um, try to really try to reach people and get people to, to act? Uh, I think one lesson is coalition politics. Um, you know, you want to get something accomplished, you have to get people you know, who come from different faiths, whether mm -hmm. the, those are religious faiths or, you know, political parties or, you know, different approaches to life, whatever. You, you, have, to, you have to build coalitions. <coughs> and, you know, dealing with something as massive as, as global warming, which I think of as the problem right now, uh, the challenge we face, um, you can't do it uh, unless you unless you build effective coalitions. Um, another thing, I think, uh, lesson that I would take from this experience is that you have to look very carefully at what are the most effective means of communication. What's the way to get through to people? Uh, an interesting example of that uh, is, I don't know if you ever ever looked at the, the series, the, the first season was on sh the Showtime network called The Years of Living Dangerously. Uh, two former 60 Minutes producers who are passionate about global warming were trying to figure out how do we present this material to a public in a way that isn't just polar bears on melting ice mm -hmm. floes. Mm -hmm. And so the whole series is built around very kind of unexpected encounters with global warming. Macho firefighters 
you know, forest firefighters who parachute into these forest fires, you know, with all this equipment and everything, and talk about how forest fires are getting out of control because of climate change. Uh, ranchers were suffering from drought. Uh, evangelical preachers, you know, they're looking for ways to find unexpected occupations, unexpected situations where people are dealing uh, with global warming. So that's a lesson to me that, you know, we need to find new ways of communicating uh, about this. And we just need to look for new tools to reach people. Um, obviously, you know, social media, the rise of the internet and so on provide all kinds of possibilities uh, for organizing. Unfortunately, these are also tools that can be used by bad guys as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, I, you know, I don't have the solution on what the right tactics or the right coalition is um, for the, the global warming issue, but it thrills me that people working on that are interested in this piece of history mm. from 200 years ago. I've spoken to you know a group of people from from 350, um, uh, a group phone call with people calling in from all over. I've spoken to the uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. I've spoken to a religious group working on, on uh, global warming. Um, I've talked on a couple of other forums where where people are that's their main issue that they're concerned with. Um, so I hope these folks from 200 years ago pro provide some inspiration because we need it. Mm. If one of the interesting things too, I think that, that Jamie mentioned to me when, when we were first talking about your book was just the, the percentage, first of all, the, how unrealistic it was, it would have been for anyone to dream that they could potentially end slavery in the British yeah. uh, empire at that time. And, and similarly, how daunting a task it, it seems to many people in, weaning the Western world or the entire world off of fossil fuels that are, that are adding to the carbon, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, do you see parallels there in terms of the, the percentage of just GDP, the number of rich people who have a stake, even not even rich people, but the number of people who work in that industry, the number of people who have a stake in not turning their attention to what's going on, what the science is indicating. There, there certainly are parallels. I mean, in the 1780s, it seemed like you'd never change the system because there were so many people making so much money from slave ships. But <laughs> what they discovered is they could carry other cargo in the same ships. Mm. Uh, there was a wonderful debate in the uh, British Parliament when they were debating over the, the slave trade, which they did repeatedly up until it finally was abolished in 1807. And actually, the BBC History website um, did a lot of stuff about uh, abolition at the time of the 200th anniversary of the abolition of the British slave trade in 2007. And uh, they hired me for a couple of months to help turn some of the material in my book into material on their website. Uh, and they got actors to record some of this stuff. I think it's all still posted there. And there was a wonderful moment in Parliament where uh, <coughs> wanting to answer the slave traders who said, you know, if you end the slave trade, you'll throw, you know, tens of thousands of British sailors out of work. 
this one abolitionist member of parliament got up and said, well, that's like uh, a highwayman saying, you know, I've got a stable of six horses here, which can only be used to rob gentlemen on the highway, and they can't be used for any other purpose. Well, I think that the same applies today, that just as, you know, these ships that had once carried human beings could carry other cargo, um, the vast um, technological skills that uh, these energy companies have could be put to work, um, you know, generating energy from sources other than fossil fuels. I mean, here in California, we've got uh, one of the largest wind installations in the country. We've got the largest uh, photovoltaic uh, uh, solar installation in the world, I believe, in Southern California. The governor has set a goal of, you know, California should get 50% of its electricity from renewable sources by uh, the year 2030. Still probably not fast enough. But at least in this state, we are moving towards those goals in a way that uh, the rest of the country and the rest of the world is is not, at least not at such a fast pace. So I think it can be done. I mean, there are all kinds of... um, you know, promising technological developments, uh, dramatically decreasing cost of solar panels, for instance. Um, my son has worked in this stuff all his life and could tell you all kinds of things about this. He's got the facts at his fingertips. He's a a, a, a member of the California State Energy Commission. Hmm. Last question I want to ask you is, is about the character's in this book who, you know, are now part of your book and are part of history and, and a significant number of people know about them and know what they contributed. Um, at one time they weren't a subject of a book. At one time they were just a person with an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you give to young people today who, who are interested in combating the major human rights challenges of our day or global warming sort of go together, I guess, um, but it, what, what sort of what sort of advice would you give them to uh, as to what you've learned from these characters who played such a huge role in combating such a huge evil mm-hmm. um, in how they can add that into their life today? Well, I think the main lesson is don't give up. Um, you know, these anti-slavery folks got deeply discouraged at different points. Um, There was this initial burst of enthusiasm, 1787 to 1792, where they really turned around British public opinion on this issue. Turned around maybe isn't quite the right word because probably 95% of people in the country had no particular opinion at all. But by five years after they started, they had... um, uh, more than 300,000 people in Britain who had signed petitions to Parliament on the subject. They had hundreds of thousands of people boycotting slave-grown sugar. Then they had a tremendous setback because Britain and France went to war. And this was the war that lasted uh, really for 20 years or so with just a few short interruptions until the, the Battle of Waterloo. And wars are usually never good for social change. They got very discouraged. At one point, they closed down their office. Uh, They all stayed in touch with each other, but 
you know, they they couldn't figure out how to how to mobilize. Mm. Um, and then conditions changed, and the committee committee came back to life, and it was the same people, the same network. Um, so, and they never gave up. And there were other periods when things sort of shut down for a while, mm. but then came back to life. Um, so my advice would just be don't give up. You know, if you're working on something like global warming, you know, there is nothing more important right now. Um, sometimes it may feel hard to find the ways to be effective, um, but there will come times when it'll seem easier. And it is an issue where we are making some progress. Mm. We just have to make it a lot faster. Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about The Exchange, want to listen to episodes online, or would like to reach out to the show, feel free to visit the show's website at theexchangeshow.com.